This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Spring 2018, Episode 7. Uh, today we're discussing Darling in the Franks, Episode 18. Now, didn't that episode just leave you angry? Don't you just want to punch this guy or this guy? Nothing says we aren't even human anymore, like breaking up a wedding ceremony because you think it's a dangerous and subversive action. Romance and reproduction are basically thought crime in this twisted world. Now, before we get started, I do want to talk a little more about the echo of Mitsuru Kokoro compared to Hero and Zero Two, something I talked about at the very end of my last show. I want to make sure I'm clear on this because it comes up again this episode and so looks even more likely now. What I want to point out was how the relationship and events surrounding these two partnerships have echoed each other at many, many points. This is notable not only because the personalities involved are so different, but because it's literally the only two examples of romance in the story. Having them nevertheless reflect each other, to me, draws a big circle around the idea that, hey, the similarity is intentional, pay attention to it. Now why would writers do this? What is the purpose? It's actually not that uncommon for minor or side characters to go through events that echo or mirror events or challenges that a main character will face. It's a way of letting a concept be explored in-universe and in front of the audience that doesn't require the protagonist to make the same choice or have the same result. We can already see how a story within a story like the Beast and Prince tale uh, can reflect the other events in the series and suggest to us as an audience that this is one possible way our series can unfold. The mirror arc is another way of accomplishing the same thing, except with actual narrative consequences. To use a non-darling example for a moment, the character of Boromir in The Lord of the Rings is an example of a mirror arc. Because of his temptation and its ultimate result, we as an audience better understand the threat to everyone else, but other characters also are forewarned about the danger because of his example. Thus, his brother chooses differently when the time comes. Thus, Aragorn can more easily resist the temptation because he has seen how it plays out. For an anime example, Sayaka's story in the middle of Madoka Magica is a cautionary tale for the main character, and it reflects her own potential story and choices in even more ways than are immediately apparent. Having mirror arcs like this makes the audience better understand why a main character might make a different choice than the one that the minor character made, and also makes the results of both choices tangible in the story proper. This is what I suspect is happening with Mitsuru and Kokoro's story. Hero and Zero Two are the main characters. The story is about them and their goals and choices and setbacks. Seeing things work out for Mitsuru and Kokoro, or not, influences how they understand the choices that are presented to them as well. If things go well for Mitsuru and Kokoro, then Hero and Zero Two are more likely to choose like they did. If things go poorly, then they are more likely to choose a different way. 
Up until last episode, Hero and Zero Two were ahead in the story over all potential romances in the squad. They were the ones who faced challenges and made choices first. Them doing so actually set an example for the rest of the squad, which led to Goro and Ichigo confessing their own feelings, and it also led to Mitsuru and Kokoro sorting themselves out and eventually getting together. However, with last episode's progression to a sexual relationship and this episode's marriage, Kokoro and Mitsuru are now the ones who are ahead in the story. Watching what happens to them this time is instructive to Hero and Zero too. It will almost certainly figure into the choices they make in the future. It doesn't even have to mean that they will choose differently. It may be that because of the similarity of their situation, one or both of them believes that disaster is inevitable and loses the will to fight it. More likely is that it convinces them to fight harder for their own story to turn out differently, much as Zero Two is struggling to understand how to finish the Beast and Prince story that shows up later this episode. With that all said, let us see exactly what happens when the Sakura blooms. Our idyllic opening from last episode carries over into the opening of today's show as Dawn finds Mitsuru just waking up. He dreams beside the child stand-in doll of Kokoro's, and the angle of the shot at first gives the impression that he is holding the doll's hand. Though peaceful and cozy as the scene may be, this opening shot kind of worries me, like we're seeing a future Mitsuru waking up alone, with a doll that represents either an actual future child or just the dream of children that Kokoro has. A cherry blossom petal floats in on the breeze to alight beside him as though emphasizing the potential transience of their relationship. Maybe I'm reading too much into things, but it's pretty deliberate to open with her awake and apart and fully dressed while he sleeps on, alone but with her doll instead of her. Anyway, once awake, he sees Kokoro looking out on the unfolding spring. Beside her, the vase of flowers, which had been wilted last episode, have been replaced with fresher cuttings, a vibrant and fertile change to reflect the one going on inside Kokoro's heart, and perhaps her body as well. It seems their love nest is actually the room that Miku barricaded herself in during the Boys vs. Girls episode, allowing them to carve out some privacy away from the rest of the squad. Then, as now, the replacing of the flowers is a deliberate invocation of renewal, death, and rebirth, and the promise that both spring and fertility hold for a world in winter. I said a long time ago that I pegged Mitsuru as possibly being the most sensitive out of all the guys, despite how harsh and confrontational he was at the start. Now that he has been under the influence of Kokoro's ministrations, he has finally become this person in truth, the sweet and introspective boy he was in his youth before the Broken Promise sent him on a long detour. Much like the first half of this episode, this short opening scene is meant to fill us with the pleasant satisfaction of what kind of life the parasites could have for themselves if they were left to their own devices. Waking up happy and together, able to share a moment looking out on the beauty blooming around them. No one is telling them when to wake, where to sleep, who to love, or what is or isn't worth assigning value. Autonomy over themselves and their futures is a new experience for them all, and they are taking to it. But those who hold power over others are not in the habit of giving it up easily. If this is the kind of life they collectively want, they will not get it by default. It won't be handed to them the way this month and change have been. They will have to fight for it. 
After the credits, we have the first hints of the fallout from the Nine's visit, as Hachi is informing Ichigo about their impending transfer to the Parasite camp. Nana is absent without apparent explanation, and Ichigo is right to wonder why the sudden abandonment after they were ignored for so long. Ichigo glances at the instrument panel on the wall and realizes that Nana and Hachi really were watching them the whole time that they seemed to be abandoned. This answers my question from last time about how widespread the surveillance may be, as we can see several bedrooms on the screen, and the bath, and even the greenhouse. Hachi has seen some things, and I would wager there's some other way that other authorities could get at these feeds if they wanted, as if this whole situation wasn't disturbing enough. Goto and Hiro are waiting on Ichigo, it seems, and their conversation indicates that Goto may have had a renewed bout with child fever, or something similar, and that Miku also might have experienced that lately. It's hard to doubt that this will eventually be important to why the course of events went the way they did, as they have continuously reminded us about disease and the parasites since about episode 10. They don't want us to forget that it's a thing. As the trio return to the others, they have a conversation that sounds to me like the first spark of rebellion. Ichigo wonders if they can't just stay there somehow. Despite their worry about being ignored or forgotten, once faced with the idea of abandoning Mistletine and following orders and joining the rest of the parasites, they resist a little. Goto explains the practicalities about why that wouldn't work, but as they walk back, you can tell they are pretty melancholy about leaving. They had been anxious about not fulfilling their role as Frank's pilots and doing their duty and all that, but having faced that and tasted a life that wasn't centered on fighting, they found they rather liked it. They are going to want to taste it again. But their environment, long protected as a single lush enclave in the midst of a barren world, is starting to fail itself. Rivers are drying up, birds are flying away, and even the vegetation seems to be withering in places. It no longer has that first golden green that we talked about last time. Fertility is leaving this area, and that heralds the parasites leaving the area as well. While it was probably always doomed once the plantation itself was damaged, the timing of showing this after Ape has once again exerted influence and even sent the Nines seems pretty intentional. They are the life stealers and the advance guard of desolation. What they touch descends into lifelessness. Thus, before they go, our fledgling little Rain King proposes one of the few fertility rituals so powerful in symbolism and psychology that it has descended down to modern times. A wedding. The mirror arc I mentioned in the intro today shows up again here, as it is Hero and Zero Two's precious picture book that provides the inspiration for a wedding between Kokoro and Mitsuru. Looking at the picture, you can see that the throwing of things at the couple and the ringing of bells came from their attempts to emulate this illustration. Maybe the idea to paint stars on the building came from here as well. Hero explains the basic of the purpose of the ceremony before revealing who was actually getting married. Just asking implies that it wasn't obvious to them who it would be, even though the only other couple is Hero and Zero Two. One of the oddest things about this episode is that no one asks why it's not them getting married. Even when they themselves bring up marriage and their childhood promise in a few scenes, there's no discussion of when or if they still intend that for the future. This conspicuous absence, combined with the later art book scene, really suggested to me that last video's speculation about the mirroring might be on the money, hence my opening and continued reiteration. Anyway, the parasites are all on board with this idea. The closest thing to dissent at all is Goto being amused at them for wanting to carry on despite being yelled at. I think this, too, is an evolution of the group into a unit that will question authority. 
The warning of the Nines and the intervening from Nada and Hachi might have been enough to quell the idea in them earlier in the story, and Kokoro and Mitsuru at the very least would not have gotten such easy support from the rest. As the group is now though, obviously everyone should be really happy for them to... <laughs> oh, right. Fatoshi. Awkward. Well, I guess it would be understandable if he excused himself from the whole affair. I mean, that would certainly be better than him making a scene. <laughs> My man. Well, that's one half of Team Outsider putting their sense of unity over their own desires. That just leaves the other half, Ikuno. We will come back to her. In the meantime, we've got a wedding to plan. My comments about Zero Two's sketch from last time seeming bridal turn out to be, well, just so. It's definitely a wedding dress, and the girls intend to find a way to make it. This leads to them cannibalizing the curtains, including the ones in the room that Kokoro and Mitsuru have been sharing. We have a moment where the girls stop to look pointedly at the flowers, then the child stand-in doll on the bed, and then Ichigo connects those ideas out loud with the idea of their potential hearkening back to Hiro and Kokoro's speeches about other purposes. Now we see Ichigo's point of view as she looks at the desk shelves and eventually discovers the camera, but isn't it interesting that the camera angle begins focused on the picture of the previous 13th squad? The first replacement of the flowers in this room seemed to mirror the replacement of the old squad with the new, and happened after the boys and girls made up at the end of episode 8. The same parasites who divided their dorm in half back then are now working together to celebrate two of them getting married instead. How's that for progression? Also, considering this symbolic callback to the other squad, does anyone wonder if there are other pictures on that camera? I mean, I don't know how they plan to develop the film for the wedding pictures, um, assuming it even survives today's events, but when they do so, is it possible they will see the last pictures the original owner took as well? That could be interesting. While the girls worry over the bride, the guys are working on other preparations. Mitsuru is making their rings, um, as best he can. I'm one of those sentimental types that thinks an imperfect ring you make yourself is way better than a perfect one you only bought, so I find his efforts and his blush at hoping she likes them to be pretty endearing. Our writing team has done a nice job, I think, at showing us how different the post-Kokoro Mitsuru is as a person. Even just admitting his hope that Kokoro likes something to Goro is a mark of the change in him. It doesn't surprise me either that a series which practically flaunts how many symbols they can make work would make sure to include wedding rings. Another symbol so powerful in our modern society as to be ubiquitous in any culture that adopts Western wedding rituals. I also suspect that the fact that he makes them and doesn't get it exactly right will eventually have some plot relevance, uh, but I'll talk more about that later on. The other three boys are preparing the ceremony area. When the wind picks up and it begins blowing leaves off the cherry tree, all three stop and look deliberately at this symbol. Much like Miku and Ichigo's protracted looks at the flowers and doll in the earlier scene, there is a deliberateness to making sure not only that the audience makes the association, but that the parasites start to internalize it as well. During a little diversion to kick the ball around, Zorome starts to propose the idea of painting the place before his own partner comes out to yell at him. If we stayed in Mistletine long enough, I guarantee those two would be having a wedding of their own. Anyway, the background activity of preparing for the wedding has involved the whole squad and everyone is pitching in. All except one. Now I have previously made comments about how the show has used Ikuno before this episode, 
Um, considering how much screen time has gone to characterizing most of the rest of the squad, she and Fatoshi have been conspicuous in their absence, primarily acting as accessories for the characterization of others. There's no rule that says every character needs to be given equal development, uh, but the nature of the story makes their situation stand out. The parasites are basically isolated, and outside of the odd eavesdropping on Ape or Nana and Hachi, we as the audience are equally isolated in our perception and understanding of the world. Because of this, we aren't that bothered by the limited characterization of Dr. Franks or Nana or Hachi or the Ape Council, or even the occasional other squad. However, Within the squad, we have seen really, really extensive characterization of the main three characters, a slow-burning romance that developed over more than ten episodes with another two characters, and entire episodes mostly dedicated to two other characters. Fatoshi and Ikuno's limited engagement would seem normal if they were in a role like Nana and Hachi, but by being right next to all of the other characters who are getting so much attention, they seem extra neglected by contrast. Fatoshi has only recently gotten even slight characterization beyond fat guy likes food and unable to deal with one-sided crush. We've gotten a better sense of who Ikuno is to this point as far as her temperament and her tendencies and her priorities go, but she has largely been ignored since about episode 8 or so. The only thing we had was a pretty good indication that she likes girls in general, Ichigo in particular, but we went through a rash of characters admitting their feelings to one another without her being a part of it. It seemed for a bit that they might leave the subject alone entirely. However, last time, Nine Alpha's commentary on gender seems to click the lights on for her in a new way, and her reaction was shocking and immediate. I hoped this meant that we would get to see her character on stage a bit more, and this episode finally delivered. Ichigo was quite surprised at Ikuno's actions last time, and she cast her a worried sidelong glance earlier during the wedding announcement. Ikuno is the lone person not helping the wedding preparation at this point, but she has been under the weather. Ichigo uses this pretense to check on her, but once alone, Ichigo really wants to ask her about the interaction with Nine Alpha. Ikuno initially plays it off, which makes Ichigo retreat, not wishing to overstep. But when she is assuming that Ikuno acted on behalf of Mitsuru and Kokoro, Ikuno's desire to keep the matter quiet is overridden. Some part of Ikuno is probably annoyed at Mitsuru and Kokoro for finding happiness. This is irrational, of course, but if you are miserable in some way, the joy of others can be a bitter pill, as they make your own misery seem sharper by comparison. Considering that Mitsuru is only just recently her partner, unhappy and withdrawn and brooding makes his journey's contrast with hers especially pronounced. He got to make things right with Hiro, find a better partner, find a reciprocal romance, and get to be the center of the whole squad's focus and celebration of that successful relationship. Meanwhile, Ikuno does not seem to have any path towards the relationship she wants. To have the object of that desire misunderstand her as supporting Mitsuru is just too unfair, and it's just enough to push her into a confession. Now, all the women in the series have been forward with their affection and intent so far, so there is no reason we shouldn't expect the same from Ikuno. I fully expect Miku to plant one on Zorome sometime in the future. Ichigo is startled, but not confrontational about being forced down. I think she's more confused than alarmed. Explaining why Nan Alpha elicited such a response is the perfect segue into Ikuno's own feelings on gender and Ichigo, and so she begins by explaining how she agrees in principle with what was said, that she understands the line of thinking. I said last time that Ikuno might be expected to agree with Nine Alpha. 
that if gender wasn't a thing and everyone could conceivably like everyone else, then she'd be better off. As she says, only a boy and girl together can operate a Franks, and she has always wished that annoying system would go to hell. What is interesting about this to me is that it means Ikuno understands that piloting is inherently about something more than piloting, right? Like, why care about driving the giant robot with boy-girl pairs if that's all it is? But she knows there's more to it, the same way Fatoshi understood there was more to it, the way Kokoro understood there was more to it. Ichigo herself must have understood it a little bit to want to be Hiro's partner for the test drive. So despite the way they are taught, or rather not taught, the parasites in general have come to understand that there is something inherently emotional about the connection process. And so Ikuno, forced to only ever connect to boys, feels quite put out, quite marginalized. It's little wonder she would harbor enmity toward that particular rule. But Ikuno's gender is a fundamental part of her and Ichigo. As I said last time, it's part of her identity, an important part. Treating gender as an annoying, necessary evil is attacking both of these truths about her, who she is and what she loves. This time, Ikuno spells it out that she wouldn't be herself if she refused to acknowledge gender, that Ichigo wouldn't be who she is without it either. She says she would hate that. As annoying as it is, both of them being women is a large enough part of their identity that changing about them is non-trivial. I relate to this idea. I'm white, I'm American, I'm male, I'm heterosexual, I'm college educated, I played sports, I love books and movies, I've got a beard, and so on and on. Of all those designations though, it's being male that forms the biggest part of my identity. More so than my ethnicity or nationality, more so than my age or affiliations. Being male and having always been treated as male together form a core part of how I see myself and others. And it's such a core part that I cannot realistically imagine who I would be otherwise. I understand then, in a third person kind of way, how difficult it must be to feel like you are the wrong gender or feel that you are attracted to the wrong gender. I would expect some crisis of identity, some difficulty being comfortable in your own skin, to wish that things were different or that you yourself were different. Those are thoughts that probably needed to be faced. It seems that somewhere along the way, Ikuno has done so. And though she's concluded that she'd rather be herself and Ichigo be herself, the pain of that reality is still with her. She elaborates further for Ichigo, who is still confused until Ikuno confesses directly. We learn that Ikuno's fascination with Ichigo started way back in Garden, with our name-giving game. We'll explore that a little bit further in theme. Uh, Ikuno goes on to demonstrate that she really has only ever had eyes for Ichigo, pointing out that she noticed the hair clip change, and her comment about a certain someone lets Ichigo know that Ikuno is well aware of her feelings toward Hiro. That is something we've had evidence for since episode 2, but it's little wonder that she realized it since Goro himself realized it a long time ago. The next part really illustrates the problem that gender holds for Ikuno, that boys get to stand beside her just because they're boys. She feels just as possessive toward Ichigo as Fatoshi feels towards Kokoro, but she doesn't even feel that she can act on it to the same degree that he has. Not saying that either display is healthy exactly, but I'm sure it makes Ikuno's situation feel just that much more desperate. And she does feel desperate, asking why she's like this, saying that she hates being like this. Ichigo, for her part, has stayed pretty chill through this whole thing, and then finally feels real empathy towards Ikuno. She herself has had to fight the frustration of loving Hiro, of occasionally feeling and acting erratically. 
In episode 5, she even said that she hates this, that her mind's a mess. And so she is not repelled or made to feel awkward by Akuno's words, but is filled with sympathy instead. She embraces her, she reassures her, she professes solidarity with her. But she says that she started thinking that we're fine this way, that going through all of this is what life is all about. I think this is just one more step of developing the idea of heroes from episode 16, of the squad finding purpose for themselves beyond their role as pilots. What Ichigo is describing here is practically the definition of a coming-of-age story, which is increasingly the type of narrative that surrounds the squad as a whole. Finding out who you are and what you want is a universal part of growing up, an extremely normal human experience. And experiencing it and asking themselves questions about it, despite their circumstance, is further evidence that they are outsiders to their society. Finally, Ikuno says that she'll have trouble giving up how she feels, which is probably something else that Ichigo perfectly understands, and finally thanks Ichigo. She's thanking her for a lot of things here, I think, but certainly one of them is the way that Ichigo handled this. I mean, she handled this way better than Hiro handled her confession. Come to think of it, she handled Goto's confession pretty well too, which may have prepared her to better handle this one. There's no way this is what Ichigo was expecting when she walked in the room, and especially being forced onto the bed, but it ends up with her hugging and reassuring Ikuno. I really hope this girl finds a way to carve out some happiness for herself. This scene overall was really well handled, I think. Ikuno liking girls wasn't used as a gimmick or a joke. Um, Ikuno explained her conflicting feelings about gender and how it contributes to her identity and confusion. And Ichigo listened to her and empathized with her rather than rejecting her or mocking her or avoiding her. The situation was treated as delicate, but not as sterile. It wasn't a dispassionate discussion of the facts, but an emotional confession in which Ikuno made herself incredibly vulnerable. What I think is also really well done is that now that Ikuno has confessed to the thing that made her feel like an outsider, which I'm sure is part of why she was the lone holdout in the wedding prep, once she confessed that and Ichigo still embraces her as part of them, she immediately begins to be a part of the wedding celebration. That is to say that Team Outsider is going to stop being as much of an outsider to our squad, and both Ikuno and Fatoshi's involvement in the wedding are a reflection of this change. As if to demonstrate this, Ichigo drags Ikuno outside to join the rest decorating the building so that she can be part of the group photo. Nothing says we are all together in this place and time like a group photo. Luckily, no one thinks about the parallel to the picture of the previous squad. Uh, that would be quite the mood killer. That night, we join Zero Two in her room, and after alighting on the cracked mirror and the bride-like headband, we see her still preoccupied with the progression of the restored picture book. There are a number of balled-up sheets around her, indicating that there is something she keeps destroying to start over. We see her beginning again, and it seems at this point we can conclude that, yes, she is thinking of rewriting the way the story goes. She perfectly remembered how all the other pages were organized, so this hesitation can only mean that she intends something different than what existed originally. I suspect that this is that last page, the one that we have not yet seen any indication of her drawing. As if trying to decide which way to go, she picks up two earlier pictures from the book. One is of the wedding ceremony, the happily ever after moment, and the other is of the night the princess turns into a beast, the miserably ever after moment, I guess. Despite the optimism of Hero's sketch and her own, it seems she is not yet confident in which way this story should go. 
I think we have to assume that she understands the parallel to her own story. And so we should take this uncertainty to be less about the storybook and more about her own future. And maybe that uncertainty is tied to what she thinks she can reasonably hope for as the scene progresses into a type of nightmare. The floor opens up and what seem to be the ghosts of Stamen past crawl out of the floor and start dragging her away. As the first one is the Stamen who was her partner back in episode one, we are to assume these are all Stamen who have died as she pursued her goal of becoming human. They have come for revenge or else represent a punishment she believes that she may deserve and this is followed by an image of the giant hand emerging once more and descending to crush her. Considering the punishment or revenge feeling we get from the stamen, should we assume that there may be some reason that she should feel like a target for punishment or revenge from the Klaxosaurs as well? Or whatever the giant hand is in particular? Now we can figure out that it's a dream soon after the black hole on the floor opens up, uh, but I still think we can infer that the scene reflects the state of her subconscious. One of the things I said some time ago that I hoped would happen was that Zero Two would come to terms with what she has done to Stamen in the past. I felt that having done something similar to Hero before realizing he was her darling might help her realize the extent of what she's done and that facing that and the ensuing guilt would be a key step in her journey to become more human by beginning to understand empathy. She comes out of the dream to Hero kneeling over her in concern. She's quite shaken latching onto him and shuddering and breathing raggedly. She tries to play it off and Hero lets it go. I wish he wouldn't have. Um, he has to know this is abnormal for her. He would be a pretty good sounding board for understanding what she's feeling if my guess is right. Perhaps in time she'll open up, but she really should remember how it went back when she kept her crisis to herself in episodes 10 through 12. Instead, they banter about the storybook which she gathers up with a promise to show him whenever it is complete. The next day, they are together again in a scene that should seem awfully familiar. I have some misgivings about this scene, um, but I'll actually talk about that all the way at the end after speculation. The promised cherry blossoms are in full bloom now, and we learn that Zero Two in the same outfit as the rest of the squad was not because she finally got to officially join them with her own uniform, but because she is borrowing Kokoro's. That is some fine trickeration. We've been led to expect Zero Two would officially be part of them thanks to that earlier image, and now we learn just how fleeting her use of the uniform will be. Fleeting in the same way that cherry blossoms are fleeting. Considering she ends up with Kokoro's uniform by the end of the episode, and the fact that she doesn't wear it later on, tempts me to speculate that she still views herself as a kind of outsider. Now the main substance of this scene is Zero Two bringing up their past promise to be married and how Hero taught her what it meant. To her, this is the moment he became her darling. I will talk more about this scene at the end, like I said, um, but I can't be alone in feeling like Hero's thoughts here seem almost sad, like someone reflecting on a past happiness. Speaking of warmth makes me think of the princess in the book remarking on how humans are so, so warm while the end part recalls the opening moments of the show and Zero Two's pronouncement that the Jin Bird way of life struck her as profoundly beautiful. I can't even be mad about how much he's tempting fate here because it sounds so much like some future hero reminiscing about his good moments with her. Maybe I'm wrong, but this episode is largely a buildup of hopeful expectations surrounding the wedding that are ultimately dashed. 
So making this moment between them uh, part of that buildup, I think is intentionally placed so as to give us misapprehension. Finally, the moment of the wedding is upon us, uh, with the guests all assembled, and Mitsuru is experiencing the classic groom apprehension. It seems the moment of being overwhelmed when first seeing your bride is universal enough to survive even the society's attempts to make them inhuman, and Mitsuru cannot even look at her. She takes his arm, nevertheless, and says to him, Oh, my heart. Ikuno enters the scene, bringing flowers for them both. Can't have your fertility ritual without your fertility symbol. I'd say Ikuno is fully in the swing of things now, yes? The couple emerges, and the parasites do their best to guess at how the ceremony should go, ringing bells and flinging petals. Their enthusiasm, despite ignorance, is quite endearing, and it seems nothing could spoil the perfection of this moment. Which means... well, you know what it means. The thought police have arrived. The Nines land and deploy soldiers as though assaulting a base, and Nine Alpha hails Hachi, probably mostly to antagonize him. Hachi questions their purpose, and tells us in the process that the 13th Squad is supposed to be exempt from the Parasite Camp's re-indoctrination program, whatever that is. Evidently, Kokoro's and Mitsuru's violation is enough to override this exemption, and they have come for the two of them, though it doesn't appear the rest will be punished for it. Nine Alpha then taunts Hachi to just sit there and watch, like he always does. Man, it is especially low to have conditioned Hachi to be the way he is, and then mock him for it. Even though he ultimately does just watch, he doesn't just sit there. Part of me wants to believe that little bit of mockery is starting to put Hachi over the edge. Now, that would serve Nine Alpha right. Anyway, they haven't crashed the wedding yet, and it proceeds with them unawares. Fatoshi has made good on his role as officiator, and has brought the ceremony to the exchanging of rings. Mitsuru's fits, since he had himself to measure by, but Kokoro's too tight, causing some pain as he does get it on. I'm going to guess right now that she will eventually have pain when the ring is removed, or someone attempts to remove it, and it is going to link in her mind to this moment. Anyway, the ceremony draws to its close as the same time the security forces have encircled them. Fatoshi, bless his heart, encourages them to seal their vows with a kiss. It seems deliberate to have this final sealing of vows action be stopped just short, as though rendering the entire ceremony unfinished and the vows incomplete. The security forces demonstrate right away that they are not afraid to use force, and most of the squad immediately gives up. Fatoshi, though, throws himself in front of the couple and tells them to run. You know, there's been exactly two moments in the series where Fatoshi has been invited to play the role of hero, and he's answered the call both times. While Hiro and Goto are over there capitulating, Fatoshi steps into the line of fire. It is a grand gesture, but ultimately fruitless. As Nine Alpha says, they are trapped in a birdcage. Fatoshi, it turns out, wasn't the only one who didn't immediately surrender, and Zero Two launches herself against the entire Nines. She and Nine Alpha trade pleasantries, and her expression here says that the aggressive Zero Two of old hasn't gone anywhere after all. We know already that Zero Two is fairly superhuman when it comes to physical ability. Now even though the Nines outnumber her a lot, they don't seem to be far behind her in capability. Should we assume this is more than just having special forces training? That they, like her, might simply be genetically stronger and faster than your average human? Whatever their situation, Zero Two must already know what it is. She throws herself at them anyway for the sake of her squadmates. 
just in case we had any doubt about her coming to value them after that first reconciliation. None of it isn't enough, though, and Mitsuru and Kokoro are taken away. Their hands being pulled apart immediately makes me think of their moment in the new opening credits. Certainly it fits the theme of separation that I thought that they were invoking there. Hachi arrives just at the end, as helpless as the rest. And helpless is exactly how they must feel now. Helpless and angry. Several are shocked and sad, of course, um, but there is some resolve in these faces. Some smoldering sense of injustice. Hero wears an expression we don't get to see very often. This is the hero that broke the window. The hero that beat on the security door. The hero that refused to stay safe in his room. This hero asks himself, asks for them all, are we not allowed even the slightest bit of happiness? The bitterness in the statement is palpable. Even the most loyal among them has had that faith shaken today, I wager. Now, I probably don't spend enough time stopping to talk about the composition of some of our scenes. Uh, we mostly focus on the content and how it relates to everything else we examine. But one of the reasons I chose this show from all the others was that the economy of scene gave me faith in the showrunners. What I mean is that scenes in general are accomplishing multiple things all the time, and they generally don't let the show grind to a halt just to bridge the gap between the information we have and the information that we need to continue. This doesn't mean that every scene is fast moving with lots of dialogue or cuts or anything. In fact, it's the correct use of space and silence that is usually a better hallmark of scene composition excellence. Here we have a moment that's just 15 seconds of no words or music uh, before Hero's narration begins, and it's such a sharp contrast to the cacophony from the scene before. And yet, how much is communicated to us about the state of our characters? There's the silence, of course. They have no words they think to say. The shock of Hitoshi still staring after them. Zotome not even getting back to his feet, and he and several others have their heads down. The calmness of the unperturbed cherry tree steadily dropping blossoms set just behind the disarray of the violently interrupted ceremony. The chairs and the table still lying where they fell. There's Zero Two's lone action of picking up the fallen flower and then holding it without comment. We feel the anger and disbelief of the parasites. We are just as angry and disrupted and helpless. Even having Hero return to being narrator signals a shift in the gravity of the moment. When his narration starts, his bitterness echoes our own, and it continues us out of the scene and into the short montage of them preparing to leave. No dialogue happens between any of them during this, and yet all the images tell us so much. The squad numbly prepare themselves for departure, and he reflects on how ignorant and cut off they are once again. The girls take Kokoro's doll with them and give a parting regretful look at their bedroom. The flowers they have maintained are nearly wilted now, wilted as mistletoe itself, wilted as their spirits. It appears Zero Two has finished the picture book, or at least has gone ahead and bound it together in preparation for the departure. If she truly has finished it after the disaster of the wedding, I struggle to believe that she was inspired to end it with much hope. But if she did finish it, I suspect she hasn't gone to show it to Hero like she said she would. Which she might do if it was too sad of an ending, but also what she might do if it was too hopeful of an ending. Um, I'm sure we will find out in time. Having her dwell over the page of the wedding ceremony at least tells us how upset she is herself at how things played out. She seemed apprehensive before when looking over the pictures in her room, and recent events have likely not helped. 
She seems withdrawn again from the rest, sitting away from them as they await transport, and dressed once again in her normal red uniform despite being still in possession of Kokoro's. It may be this is just the best she knows how to deal with things, um, as they do all seem pretty downcast and withdrawn at this point. As they fly to their new home, we find that Nana is also being transported, evidently as a prisoner. This is another one of those examples of a good economy of scene. Hachi has come to ask her what he could have said to the children if he still had his emotions. This activates a series of memories for him that connect us to the scrambled frames from last time. A happy Nana is a parasite, about to embark on a mission and grabbing onto her stamen's arm affectionately. An explosion and erect Franks tell the tale, and it appears to be Hachi himself who breaks open the cockpit and discovers the scene of her anguish. Such an emotional response to her partner's death won't do, it seems, and her squad mates, including Hachi, watch as she is restrained, knocked out, and carried away. In the present, Hachi wonders if the way she is now, which I guess is probably the way she was then too, he wonders if maybe she could have better offered them support. Hachi, for all his lack of emotion, is definitely feeling some emotion here. This is regret, and it's stirred up by a feeling that he failed the children somehow, that he did not know how to support or comfort them. Additionally, he understands that Nana's reconnection with her own emotions makes her more suitable to serve the parasites in this. He doesn't quite say, or maybe even perfectly articulate it to himself, but this is basically an admission that the emotional indoctrination has some flaws. Like I said, this may be the beginning of something for Hachi. Next, we get an update from Ape about the meeting from two episodes ago. The shot begins with the clearest picture we've had yet of their ceiling. This is the pattern I pointed out is present on their flags, and also seems to be repeated in the grounds at Garden for whatever reason. Still no idea on their purpose, but putting them in such prominent places suggests some kind of importance, right? I don't know what, though they kind of remind me of maybe orbital paths? Some kind of star map or an alignment prediction? I really don't know. Anyway, it does appear that the guess about there being multiple factions and or types of beings in the council may be on point, as three of them appear to be in the dark about the assassination attempt, while the other two, including Papa, must have been behind it or expected it without sharing that knowledge. During this exchange, one of them makes this curious statement. We seek a world where ape and humanity can live for all eternity. Well, that certainly puts ape outside the designation of humanity, doesn't it? The later statement about being freed from the shackles of their shells, meaning their bodies, further seems to indicate that these three are different from the other two, both in authority and understanding, and perhaps even the actual makeup of their being. This also recalls their statements during the blowing up of the plantations, where they refer to the act as freeing them from the cages of their bodies. As this happens just after an upload is complete, I suspect our notion about some kind of mental immortality or consciousness uploading is probably what is going on here. Why and how there are more than one faction or being is still a mystery, um, but we've talked a bit about this. The different way one of the council reacted to the telepathy of the Klaxosaur princess already suggests the possibility of being synthetic in some way. Considering where ape and their society are on the sliding scale of nature versus artifice, fully artificial bodies and humans could easily be par for the course. Anyway, the other interesting tidbit here is the reference to a replacement key. We already knew that there were two keys and that they had one, 
and we are assuming that it is Zero Two and or Strelizia. Besides the parallels between her and the Claxosaur Princess, her importance would explain how she gets away with a lot of what she does, and why no one ever takes a shot at her or otherwise risks seriously injuring her. Next up, we get an establishing shot of the parasite camp called Bird Nest. Nests are where the young are kept safe, it's true. Um, it's also where new birds are born, and it's also the place they leave when it's time to fly. It is situated in the middle of a lake, so it's as much like Alcatraz as anything else. For funsies, here is a color inversion of this place uh, with a little cleanup. This looks like something that would be right at home among the Claxosaurs, doesn't it? On the inside, it looks like a giant hangar or a coliseum with some central clear space and levels of cubbies that apparently are the parasite's residence or their standby areas. Though we see other squads out and about and perhaps mingling, our 13ers appear to be huddled together in their own little corner of the place. They were different from the other squads even before the assault on the Grand Crevasse. After a month or so of being alone, they might as well be a different society altogether. That is to say nothing of their sense of trauma and shock at how things ended. It should be little wonder that they cling to one another in this small area. Their discussion indicates that the parasites are being summoned in order. I don't know if this is squad order or like actual parasite order. I mean, they have three of the first 16 numbers right here, so surely they would know the answer by now, um, unless they really are exempt from whatever is going on, as Hachi indicated. I'm sure this is probably the re-indoctrination that was referred to earlier, but they wouldn't bring it up if it weren't going to be important later, so I guess we'll just wait to hear about that. It appears they have been here for weeks on standby, weeks during which they still don't know the fate of Mitsuru and Kokoro. We are joining them, then, at the moment that this changes, and a message to Ichigo rouses all of them out of their cubby to go meet their estranged squadmates. Now, I was surprised they were returned to the squad at all at first, um, but once I was sure that was happening, I felt the need to brace for impact. Like, no way they had just been given a stern talking to and then set free. Had they been brainwashed? Tortured into a shell of their former selves? Replaced with synthetic versions of themselves? The squad is happy at first, but Hero's apology and the ensuing confusion quickly changes that. For me, though, I was honestly relieved that it was just memory manipulation. We might find out there's more to it in time, um, and I have some things to say about that in goals, um, but they weren't killed off or separated forever. It's definitely still them since they still have their rings. Uh, maybe. More about that in a second. Memory alteration is awful, but from their reactions here, it appears all they went after was the memories of each other. They still recognize the rest of the squad. That has to create lots of dissonance in their memories, like erasing how Ikuno and Fatoshi came to be partners, or why Mitsuru's hair used to be different, and so on. We've already seen that a strong enough trigger can surface the altered memories, like in Nana's case, and Hero and Zero Two's example prove that with a strong enough motivation, you can overcome the erasure entirely. That is, of course, another example of that mirror arc between the two couples, linking their stories even more closely together. It's not like it's a sure thing that they can get their memories back, but we already know that that option's on the table. Honestly, this feels like ignorance on the part of Ape, or whoever was in charge of this. Giving them back to their squad without changing the squad's memories? How long do you think it will take for Kokoro and Mitsuru to figure out that they've been tampered with? The leaving of the rings suggests this also. 
They interrupted a wedding ceremony. Do they not know what rings are anymore? Do they not know what a powerful totem for their memory these will be? Of course, if the intent is to give them fake versions of the two of them as a type of infiltration, then the rings become the perfect cover, especially if you give the memory wipe excuse as a reason that they've been kept apart. If we ever see Kokoro take that ring off effortlessly, we'll know that this is what's going on. But whether you think that's likely probably depends on how savvy you think Ape is. Considering their antics with the award ceremony back in episode 10, I'm inclined to believe that they don't actually really understand humanity, um, or at least one faction of them doesn't understand humanity. That actually might be exactly what the series as a whole is building toward. That Ape's fatal flaw is misunderstanding and underestimating humanity. And I don't mean humanity as a population, but as a concept. The human instinct and will, and how it will behave if allowed to run its normal course. There is such a thing as pushing too far, and as Hero takes over for the closing narration, you get the sense that the line is close, if not already crossed. He says that the home they built for themselves was too brittle, that everything they hold dear is always destroyed. But he doesn't despair. Instead, he sounds resolute. If that is our destiny, then we can't let it rule us anymore. We're at the end of our rope. This plays over Kokoro seeing and recognizing the cherry blossoms with all their layered symbolism and the direct link to the event that just happened. So what I am thinking is that Ape has really messed up here. I mean, maybe they were always doomed by letting Hero and Zero Two find each other. Um, that also seems like something they could easily overlook or underestimate, but the situation they have put the 13ers in is one of desperation. There's a piece of advice that is centuries old and is shared among hunters and military commanders alike. This advice says that you always leave your prey an avenue of escape, always a belief that they can get away if they just run a little more. As long as they have that, they will keep trying to survive. Once they believe they can't escape, that's when they become dangerous. That's when the only thing they have left to do is to fight you back. Now, Ape has done a lot that we find invasive and abusive and dehumanizing. They've stolen generations to throw into their never-ending war, and they've diverted the natural progression of parent to child into something completely artificial. Breaking up a wedding seems like small potatoes by comparison, but symbolically? Bringing down the weight of their military to stop one of humanity's most ancient and hollowed rituals, the ceremonial joining of two people? This is a strike against the idea of family itself, the most basic unit of humanity for eons. It's a strike against the idea of choosing another for yourself and of giving yourself to another. It's a strike against hoping for the future, of believing in a future that you can grasp for yourself. This wasn't just Kokoro and Mitsuru getting married and being together. The whole squad is their family, the only family any of them have, and this was they as a group joining ever more tightly. They haven't attacked one wedding once. They've attacked the entire idea of human relationships. It's clear from the state of the adults that they've succeeded in the past, but the 13ers are too human. I suspect they will huddle together and say, this far, but no further. Do you hear those distant drum beats, Ape? Do you see those clouds? Those aren't the drums of celebration, and those aren't clouds of fancy. Those are the distant drum beats of war. Those are rising clouds of smoke. 
smoke from the fires of rebellion. So switching gears, in goals today, we only have squad-specific movement. In the goal of pursuing Mitsuru, well, Kokoro can't win for losing. Marrying the guy should have been the victory condition for this goal, but they end the episode as strangers. Here is where the echo with Hero and Zero Two actually gives us hope, because we know that they eventually recovered their memories of each other. The strength of their feelings was probably contributory to their success, and Kokoro and Mitsuru should have that going for them as well. That said, as long as Kokoro does not actually know who Mitsuru is, we can hardly say that she has this goal and is choosing her actions based on it. So for now, we will have to call this goal suspended. In the life beyond piloting goal, um, I suspect continually adding to the ways the squad defines this for themselves is meant to help us and them understand why they might eventually push back against the society around them. In today's episode, we get two examples of this. One is the long-term implication of wedding vows, um, until death do them part and all that, um, which is novel to the parasites at first, but has been internalized by the end. This is quite future-looking, something they had not done much of before, uh, before Hero's speech, but is increasingly becoming part of their worldview. So that is how the goal changes their impression of the future. The other example is how they're experiencing the present. Ichigo's comments to Ikuno about how their experiences might be what life is actually about, uh, as I said, is basically the definition of what a coming-of-age story is. Reflecting on how their moment-to-moment -moment existence might be the actual meaning behind their lives is quite the change in priority. It's actually closely related to the whole cherry blossom transient beauty thing. Observing the fleeting splendor of cherry blossoms is supposed to elicit a certain appreciation of your own fleeting existence, to take pleasure in the moments as they happen, for you only have just so many. Thus, we can link Ichigo's sentiment here to the title of today's episode as well, When the Sakura Blooms. Lastly, Kokoro wants a baby. Oh man. So never mind the loss of her man. Let's pretend for a moment that she had managed to get pregnant already. Surely there's no way that they would let her stay pregnant, right? Like, they wouldn't find out that she's pregnant, erase her memory of what that even meant and how it happened, and then just let her stay pregnant, setting her up for the biggest shock of her life months away. So, if she was pregnant, either they terminated it, or they straight up stole it somehow. The question I have for our goal, though, applies whether she was pregnant or not. Knowing that it's something she wanted, and knowing she was defying them to attempt it, do you think they would stop at just wiping her memory? I mean, I was honestly shocked they returned them to the squad. I talked about their naivete about the rings already, but I trust they understand that removing the memory of the specific guy, and maybe the maternity book as well, won't necessarily prevent this for all time. So did they do something to her? Did they do something to render her unable to conceive? Like a tubal ligation or a chemical castration or something? I mean, they've been gone for weeks, apparently, but I don't get the impression that the memory wipe actually takes that long. Well, we don't know anything, of course, but this goal might have just been rendered impossible. So then to conflicts, 
In squad ailments, all we have here is that we get more information that Goro and Miku have both experienced fever-like symptoms. Uh, like I said in the walkthrough, bringing this up again indicates that this issue is something they want us to remember, um, which means it will almost certainly affect the story or our understanding of it uh, at some point. Then we have the jig is up. Well, we were right. The response to the Nines report was immediate, and they were involved in carrying out that response. The wedding was crashed, some memories were wiped, and the squad was relocated. Where our 13ers are at episode's end is drastically different than they were at the beginning, more's the pity. We also saw that Nana has apparently been imprisoned for the time being, and we have no idea what kind of measures we can expect for her in the society. There may still be more fallout from this. I mean, we don't get any hint at all about Dr. Franks, so we will leave this be and continue to watch for how it unfolds. So in theme, well, we have a fair amount, so we're gonna try to keep each of them relatively short. Starting with individual versus society, uh, Mitsuru and Kokoro's desire both to marry and have children put them at odds with plantation society. The classic way this tension is resolved is that either the individual finds a way to leave society or carve out their own place in it, or else society pushes back and the individual must suffer or change. The Thirteeners believed that their time alone in Mistletine was beginning to be a space that they could carve out for themselves, but as Hero says at the end, this home was too brittle to live in. Thus, society came to push back, both causing them to suffer and forcing them to change at least for now. However, bearing witness to this injustice is more likely to galvanize the rest of the squad against the society rather than against them as individuals, so stay tuned. Now, Ikuno's homosexuality within the squad was a situation that Ikuno herself might have been viewing as her versus the society around her, namely her own squad. This might have contributed to her long silence on the matter. With no reasonable hope of getting what she wanted, Perhaps it's better to stay quiet and not risk coming into conflict with the others. But Ichigo's response and acceptance should mollify this fear. I would expect the rest of the squad to follow suit. This was a tension that Ikuno might have been fearing and it was possibly directing her actions, but it should be behind her now. Power of names. Um, obviously, Ikuno tracing her affection for Ichigo back to receiving her name. Um, this is pretty straightforward but I wanted to comment again on what naming really exists as in this society. Names have power normally, but in a society where names are borderline taboo and dehumanization is the prevailing norm, the bestowing of a name is like the bestowing of humanity itself. It's making someone an individual, elevating them in value beyond their role as a cog in the machine. Small wonder this should awaken some affection. It did the same thing for Ichigo toward Hiro, I don't doubt, um, and probably for Mitsuru as well. As all of this flows from Hiro's original idea, we can probably also consider this another aspect of the idea of him as Rain King, as he inadvertently started the process of restoring humanity to the world by reintroducing the idea of names and their power. In flower symbols, we mostly pointed out flower symbolism as we went along, um, and there was quite a lot of it. The episode title especially invokes the cherry blossom and its idea of transient beauty, and if a beautiful wedding stopped short doesn't encapsulate that idea, then I don't know what does. We linked the other moments together as they came up, so, so we won't revisit them all, uh, but I do want to point out that the parasites originally came from garden, something invoking their symbolic link to flowers, but where they have taken them now is the bird's nest. 
It's still an idea of a haven, but has changed from flower imagery to bird imagery. As Mistletine itself was occasionally called a birdcage, perhaps in-universe there is a break between children pre-parasite as being flower-linked and post-parasite being bird-linked. I'm sure we'll eventually get to look back and parse exactly what the difference is over the course of the whole show. Speaking of bird and flight symbols, we have a moment during the painting of Mistletine where Zero Two paints a bird on the wall. This is the same design that showed up at the end of the original end credits, and here it reminds me a little bit of that nursery room that her memories begin from, uh, which also had stars painted on blue walls like we are seeing here. Birds flying free, or flying at all, has been a symbol of freedom, uh, and in the case of the djinn, a symbol of togetherness and partnership. The djinn bird is normally a marriage symbol, so it would be welcome here if that's what she is painting, but also represented here is the exercising of their freedom to do something like hold a wedding and get married. It's a false sense of freedom though, as the Nine and their goons will soon prove. In fact, Nine Alpha comments about them being in a birdcage. They have nowhere to go. They aren't free. However, he doesn't get the complete picture of this symbol. Ever since the Grand Crevasse battle, their birdcage has been cracked. Literally, and in a sense, this time in isolation has allowed the group to spread their wings a bit, entertaining another way that they could live their lives. They'll now find returning to being trapped especially intolerable, stoking whatever will drive them going forward. Having tasted the skies, the cage is no longer their home. Finally, in structure mirroring, um, I am going to run with the Mitsuru Kokoro mirror arc um, as far as regards to Hero and Zero Two. Um, I pointed out the ways that it cropped up this time. One of the things I think it has possibly already affected is that Hero and Zero Two are not going to be pursuing any idea of their own marriage now. I mean, it should have struck us as odd to have them broach the marriage subject and make no mention about whether they were still headed on that path, right? But they have been exceedingly cautious, and it seems that they have done so with good reason. They may even keep their relationship on the down low in this parasite camp to avoid a similar fate. As I hinted, the wedding disaster may even have influenced how Zero Two ended the storybook, um, assuming that she did so. However, implicit in treating this idea as a theme is the idea that one has agency over their fate that just because the pattern seems to suggest you were fated to end up one way doesn't mean you roll over and accept it. This appears to echo Hero's closing words of the episode, that they can't let such a destiny rule them any longer. One of the ways this might influence them as well is that they get invested in Kokoro and Mitsuru's situation. Finding a way to get them back to their happiness might suddenly seem like a step on the way to their own. I'm not sure yet how Kokoro's childbearing wish plays with Zero Two's inability to do so, um, well, as far as she knows. As I mentioned in Goals, Kokoro might be just as incapable now. If so, finding some way Zero Two could fulfill that goal instead might have a certain logic to it as a mirror to Kokoro and her sudden inability. In What to Watch For, we have a couple concerning Ape that we can strike off. We wondered how they would react to the Nines report at the end of last episode, and whether the Nines themselves would be part of that reaction. I said then that the positioning at the end of the episode like that suggested their reaction would be the next thing we saw them do, and sure enough, the Nines themselves come to crash the party. 
We don't yet know to what extent they have disciplined Kokoro and Mitsuru. Uh, we have no idea what has happened to Dr. Franks, and we only know that Nana is basically arrested with no clue as to her actual future fate. But as we saw this begin, we'll take it off and assume there's a good chance the Nines might be involved in the other fallout as well. This may even be keeping an extra eye on our squad going forward. We don't know how exactly, but I think we can safely say that Ape is not as homogenous as they first appeared. These two, plus the short one that attacked the princess last time, seem to be one kind of faction or being, while the other four appear to be a different faction or thing. I kind of like that there are now two sets of mysteries about their identities, you know? That's all to take off. Um, for things to add, I think we should watch to see if more has been done to meet Sue and Kokoro than just deleting their memories of each other. I already mentioned some other potential ways this could go sideways, so we won't assume that this is the end of it. We should watch for clues to the storybook and how Zero Two ended it, uh, if she did so. We might get to infer this before actually seeing it, but we can at least watch to see if she really did complete it and bind it, and whether or not she showed Hero if that's what she did. We should watch to see if Zero Two's fledgling feelings of guilt will continue, and if she'll discuss it with Hero, or he'll insist on digging into what troubles her. Like I said, I think this is a step in her evolution that she needs to take. We should watch for finding out what Zero Two's link to the giant hands is. She is caught by them in the opening, um, she sensed it when it first appeared, and now she dreams of being crushed by it. I think they're definitely connected. Perhaps that is the thing that she is the key to, assuming that she is the replacement key. Speaking of, what is the replacement key, and what does it unlock or enable? Probably should have added this before now, but we'll go ahead and do it this week. Lastly, let's add one for our memory wiped pair. Obviously we want to know if they remember anything, or if there's any way to restore them, like Hero and Zero Two, and even Nana have been. But what I want to watch for is actually whether they will revert to how they were before meeting each other. Like, will Mitsuru go back to being withdrawn and confrontational rather than involved and sensitive? Will Kokoro go back to being afraid of confrontation and hesitant to speak up? We observed how the change to Hero progressed after his own memory was taken, and how he has resumed some of his old self after regaining memories. Will we see similar changes in Mitsuru and Kokoro? I'm definitely curious to find out. In speculation, the only thing to take off of our board is that Kokoro would be taken away. Um, right above it, we have that Kokoro is pregnant, but as already discussed, we don't know. Uh, we don't even know if we'll ever know, though returning her to them probably means we'll find out at least something new out of it. Wouldn't it be awful if she gets memories back and one of them is of the adults taking away her pregnancy or even her ability to become pregnant? That would be pretty awful to behold. Now there are some things to add. Um, I think Hachi is shaping up to be an ace in the hole. Without knowing where we're heading, it's impossible to guess how, but I think with the focus on Nana and her fall, Hachi becomes the overlooked asset hiding in plain sight. From his helplessness during the wedding and his comments to Nana, I think we can infer that the change in the parasites and their misfortune is starting to get to him. He also has a knowing, hardening look on his face at the end when he too realizes that Kokoro and Mitsuru have been mind wiped. Since he was a parasite at one point, it's possible he can regain memories and emotions as well. And I think he is being set up to do something for our squad at a pivotal moment. 
Um, I think the parasites will finally begin talking about how to alter their fate. It's a dicey conversation to have in the midst of the camp, so I'm unsure they can just go right into it. Uh, but as I said, this has got to be enough to start up those revolutionary fires. They've seen the bliss of life apart from Ape and the horror of life under their heel. I think Hero and Zero Two are being very cautious about their own situation, so I'm not even totally sure that they will explain the mind wipe situation to the rest uh, since it exposes their own past. I would like to think they would, considering the circumstance, but it may also be that some other action interrupts the next steps they would ordinarily take and they don't get a chance to make sense of things. And that leads me to something I've suggested before, but I will go ahead and speculate it as a kind of two-part speculation. The first is that I think the Klaxosaur Princess will likely make some effort to secure the other key, and if we're right that it's zero two, then this will bring the two of them together. And even if she doesn't initiate it, I still predict that zero two and our princess are brought together. At that point, I suspect we will find out just what kind of memories are buried in zero two in the time before the nursery. This could theoretically lead directly to the second part. Um, but I think this can exist apart from the above. Basically, the 13th Squad cannot stand up to plantation society by themselves. Just the Nines are probably enough to neutralize any kind of actual resistance. But there is a force that has given Ape trouble for decades. Following the logic of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, I predict some kind of alliance or truce is going to occur between some or all of our 13ers and the Klaxosaurs. Either the princess, or the giant hand thing, or their society at large, or something. Maybe it proceeds out of Zero Two and the Klaxosaur princess being brought together? Maybe not. Maybe they start out opposed and the squad divided, with Zero Two and Hero being accepted as allies of Klaxosaurs, but the rest kept apart, or whatever. There's lots of ways it could shake out, depending on both Apes and the Princess's next steps. But I don't think that the Klaxosaurus will remain this unknown antagonistic force for our squad all the way to the end. I think they will find some common cause in tearing down Apes' control of the world and plantation society. So that's all I want to speculate for today. I'm feeling out of sorts a bit in our series right now. Um, I'm not sure if we've arrived at the Act 3 break or not. Um, but I'm sure some fundamental change has just occurred. Part of what has me out of sorts, but also worried for our cast, is that scene with Zero Two in Kokoro's uniform. I'm bothered by the scene because it takes away our future. Up until now, that was still a potential direction the story led, and now it's behind us. Not only does this mean we have no foreshadowing for the story, aside from the other Franks in the opening, it also emphasizes this episode in its importance. By having the past and future events in the first seconds of the show be the mistletoe tree and the spinning in the blossoms, you are saying that both events are critical watershed moments in Zero Two's life. We know full well why the mistletoe scene holds this importance. Why does this last scene hold that importance? Is this the last time that Hero and Zero Two get to be happy together? Just as the mistletoe was the last place they were happy together in their youth? Does the fact that they talk about marriage in both scenes have any significance? That's actually potentially a hopeful parallel, suggesting a future third scene that is maybe an actual wedding between the two. I mean, surely it's no accident that both scenes involve trees as prominent symbols, right? In fact, this potentially opens up a lot of things. 
I said before that I would be shocked if this show didn't end in springtime. Um, there's just so much thematically that makes sense for this. So much so that if it looks like it's going to end in winter, then you had better all be expecting tragedy. But for it to still end in spring, it will either need to end extremely soon or a year from now. Now, maybe I'm way off on my assumption, but another year allows a lot to happen, like an actual rebellion plot, or some intrigue with Klaxosaur society, or spending the time developing Klaxosaur society for the audience. It's even enough time for a pregnant girl to bring a baby to term. A lot could happen, good or bad. There's even the odd possibility that they are intentionally misleading us, and that same scene will replay in a year in a totally different world. Um, but let's not count on that. Rather, it seems our sole future-looking vision has come and gone and is no longer a potential destination. It doesn't help my outlook to note how fatalistic Hero seems in that scene, as though thinking of some past moment of glory that has gone beyond recall. Stressing this episode and its ultimate sorrow by making it part of the show's opening, that doesn't bode well for our heroes either. Either way, I can't help but feel we know even less about where we're going than we did before. We're off the edge of the map. Here there be monsters. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.